Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. It is my honor to have as our conversation to partner today, Kristen Sturk. She is one of our child and adolescent counselors at our Holland location, although you do come to Zealand on occasion as well. And Kristen's background and expertise is in child trauma. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve. How did you decide that this field and this topic was going to be a passion area of yours? Oh, goodness. So when I was growing up, my brother struggled with addiction, and I went to three or four different counselors and never really found my space. I never found somebody that I was kind of able to open up to and feel safe with. So, so many people going to high school and college and then on to their masters don't know what they want to do. People change majors. And I went straight into college knowing I wanted to be a psychology Spanish major and then go on for my master's in social work um, because it's my passion and what I feel Jesus called me to do to be a safe space for kids. So I want to be that person that I never experienced when I was a kiddo. And Kristen, so you went to school for that, you graduated, and then did you just jump right in? I did. So I graduated from Grand Valley, and then I got my master's from Michigan State, go green. And then I actually went to Bethany Christian Services, which was where I had my internship my last year, and I was hired right out of my internship. So I think Bethany really, in Grand Rapids, really gave me the jump into uh, counseling children with trauma because there are so many foster care cases that we get because the foster care agency and the Family Counseling Center are connected. And so Bethany kind of just refers all of their foster kiddos to counseling in that same office. So I think that's really what gave me the start is to seeing the hard things that kids go through and wanting to be a safe space for them. So you had great education, you got all of your credentials, and then you actually got into the field. What was, was it a shock? Like what was difference between knowing it in theory and then actually sitting across the table or on a chair or on the floor with a child? What, how is it different in practice than it was in theory? So I think knowing all of my education and kind of doing practicum and going through what play therapy is and everything like that, I think it's so different because when you actually get thrown into a situation, there's no professor, there's no supervisor that's telling you, you know, this is what you should say or this is how you should act or, you know, this is what that play means. So kind of learning it all on my own and now having interns and staff that look to me fresh out of college saying, well, my professor told me to do this and I have, you know, 13 years in this field of clinical knowledge and clinical experience. And most of the time, it's just saying, okay, what would this child need from me? What do you think is going to be needed from this situation? Or how how can I help this child? How can I be a safe space or kind of a calming presence to them versus what does my education say because education sometimes is this happens then this happens then this happens and we all know that's not the reality of life it's not a formula sometimes it's a dance exactly exactly so kind of taking that clinical knowledge and that education and sending it into real world experience while you know being in a room playing with a kiddo Kristen, one of the lines that we love to bounce around on the show is one by rick warren where he talks about how god never wastes a hurt how was your childhood pain an asset if we could call it that or how did how did god redeem that for the work that you're doing now so child trauma therapy is super super hard and i think that 
saying that Jesus called me to this job truly is. Um, it's not just a cliche saying for me. Um, I have two kids of my own. I have a life of my own. And so going to work and hearing all of these hard things that these kids go through and then still being able to go and function as a mom, function as a, um, a volunteer at school, you know, in my church community, everything like that. I think I'm able to compartmentalize what I hear at work because of the hurt that I went through as a kiddo and kind of how I still had to live my normal child life while realizing that there were things going on in my home or with my brother's life that um, not other children have experienced. And so I couldn't necessarily um, talk to other kids about that. And so kind of being able to kind of find my people. Um, and it's the same right now. Like I have my winning at home people. My best friend is actually a, another therapist. So I have her and then my mom is a therapist as well. So I kind of, I have awesome people in my life to tell my hard stuff to and, and a therapist of my own, because in my opinion, all good therapists should have their own therapist. Um, but I have those people who I can share my hard stuff from work and then, um, be able to go home and live a quote normal life with my boys. So I think compartmentalizing, praying a lot, you know, asking Jesus to be with these kids that I see, even when I can't be with them. Um, I'm with them, you know, an hour a week or an hour every other week. So praying blessings over them and, you know, praying that they have safe people and people that they're comfortable with if things come up in those weeks that I'm away from them. Kristen, it's got to be hard because in your job, you see kind of like the worst of the worst things that happen to innocent people in the world. How does that, how do you keep that from like rattling your faith, A, in humanity and B, in God's ability and desire to protect the most vulnerable, which are children? Steve, that's a hard question. What I do is I have always stepped into my job saying I get to be their safe place. I get to be their person for one hour. Mm -hmm. And hoping and praying that they have, you know, either a foster parent or an adoptive parent that gets to be their person when I'm not there. Um, I have kids come into me and, you know, don't want to talk about the hard stuff. And then I have kids who can't wait to come see Miss Kristen every week. And I hear that from their caregiver. And so I think that praying before session, praying, you know, after I'm on vacation for a week and then coming back into the office knowing that my brain is going to be on emotion overload from hearing these things again, I think that it it helps knowing that these kids, um, at least they have a person who is willing to get them help. They have somebody who said, okay, you need a safe person to talk to or you need to talk through your trauma. So knowing that that person is on their side, that brought them into counseling. Now, whether they come to counseling consistently or inconsistently, that's kind of, it's a really hard thing for me if they really need counseling, but there's lots of no-shows or missed appointments or anything like that. But I think it restores my hope because people know that counseling is available and ready for young kids. It's hard because I never want to be the person that doesn't believe a child or never want to be that person that second guesses what a child is saying. Um, In my office, I've had so many people give disclosures of sexual abuse or physical abuse or domestic violence, and they'll go on and tell other adults and they'll just brush it under the rug or they will say, well, she's four. What does she know? And things like that. And that's what really, that's what triggers my emotions, my upsetness is 
why are we not believing these kids when they're mm-hmm. saying kids have no reason to lie? Yes, they can fib. Yes, you know, did you steal that pencil? No, I didn't. But coming up with these massive elaborate stories of getting abused or seeing other people getting abused, that's really what triggers me is those people who don't believe when a child is saying something. Thank you for doing that. Like, thanks not only for being an advocate for children, but thank you for being a resource where other parents or adults who might see something that feels off in a child's life can know what some next steps could they could take are. Kristen, what do you say to people who are caregivers, foster parents, who suspect that trauma might be a part of a backstory, but they don't know for sure? What, what do you say to parents or caregivers who are like, I think there might be something here, but I, I don't know and I don't want to make stuff up? So I always encourage people to have a third party. So whether that be me, whether that be another child therapist, whether they are suspecting, you know, child sexual abuse, there's the Child Advocacy Center, there's the the Kent County, I think it's the Child Assessment Center. There are multiple places that you can go where you can have a professional kind of dive in as that third party because when there is a disclosure, oftentimes I will highly suggest that mom and dad be mom and dad and they let me lead that child through trauma. So I know the signs for trauma. I know coping skills for trauma. I know all of the things like that. Whereas mom and dad, mom and dad can be, you know, the cuddler or the hugger or somewhere that that child is going to feel safe to express themselves while mom and dad don't necessarily need to be the bearer of all that trauma because there is definitely a real thing called secondary trauma and even some of my foster parents have that when they get foster kids in their house and either of me the foster care caseworker tells them their story or you know that foster child tells them that story and they don't know what to do with it they you know are kind of speechless because they don't know the right words to say they don't know the words to comfort them you can't promise that you know, they're going to be safe forever. You can't promise that they're not going to get hurt. All parents and caregivers can promise is that they will try their hardest to protect that child because it's their job to keep them safe. And that's also what I say in my office when a child comes in and there's suspected abuse or neglect. It's my job to keep you safe. It's mom and dad, mom and dad's job to keep you safe, but that's also Miss Kristen's job. Kristen, you talked about knowing the signs of trauma. I know that every child in every case and every age and every maturity level is different. What are some kind of generic entry-level signals that adults who care about kids can be looking for or be mindful of or aware of that it might be time to reach out to that third party for help? The number one thing that I look for is secret keeping. So has that child kind of gone into their room more? Have they kind of become more of a recluse? Do they not include themselves in family activities? Uh, Are they afraid of being around a certain type of gender? Are they afraid to talk to mom and dad? Do they shy away from different questions? It's the same signs of anxiety and depression in teens. So they're in their room a lot. Um, They're hiding. They are not wanting to, you know, include themselves in daily activities that they used to love. So I think the majority of times that we think of, you know, abuse and neglect, it's these either, oh, it could never happen to my child, or it's this movie-type related trauma or abuse where the child gets kidnapped and then sold into, into slavery, into trafficking, and things like that. Whereas 
in reality, it could be at a family reunion with a uncle that you have not seen for a while. And that person says, oh, hey, do you want to go play games or something like that? And then everybody talks about, oh, it was so great to see that uncle and that one child who maybe went off with that uncle or, you know, the uncle asked them to do things. Then they get really shy and they don't want to talk about it and because nobody's going to believe them. Hmm. And so just kind of when your child is not acting, parents know their kids best. So when your child is not acting like your child, that's the point where you need to step in and be like, hey, has something happened? You know, what's going on? And if that child feels safe with you, nine times out of 10, they're going to have some sort of emotion or they're going to say something like, I don't want to say anything or I don't want to I don't want to tell you then at that point you can you know seek for a third party hey something happened I've had that happen before where mom was like my kid is just acting different so they come into me and we you know go through and either yeah it's friendships or something bad has happened or something scary or sad or things like that so my encouragement to parents is always you know your child best when your child is not acting like your child whether that be for the past four years five years you know ten years you know what that kid's behavior is like there are things that are attributed to hormones and growing up in adolescence but when you see something really off with that kid then it's time to step in for professional help So it sounds like the goal isn't even necessarily to get a disclosure. It's to get them to a place where they can get a disclosure. Yeah. That we shouldn't try to force that or manipulate that or coax it out if a child is not not ready or not willing or not feeling safe. Right. Exactly. So sometimes kids don't want to tell their parents um, because their parents are either going to judge them, not believe them, treat them differently or, you know, kind of brush it under the rug. And so getting them to talk to a third party, I know different questions to, you know, leading questions. I know nine times out of 10 kids talk to me and they look for my response to the things that they are saying. I have very good schooled features because I don't want that child to think either I'm thinking less of them or I'm judging them or I am doing anything to make them disclose or make them hide things from me. Whereas parents, we are very much, you know, full of expression with our kids. We are, oh my goodness, that's awesome. Or seriously, why did you do that? Um, And so I think that's the number one thing with kids is they are looking for reaction. And when parents just simply say, okay, yeah, tell me more about that they're more apt to go into detail or to say, you know what, I want to talk to somebody. And I'm hopeful that in today's culture, we are being more open and honest with kids about mental health, about, you know, anxiety or depression or bad things that are happening in the world that they are able to say, can I talk to somebody about this? Uh, I have a kid who is going to be in fourth grade um, at one of the schools that I counsel. And they talk to their mom about um, really just wanting to talk to somebody else. I just want to talk to somebody else because oftentimes when a kid feels stressed, the parent is feeling stressed as well, and so they don't want to overwhelm the parent, and so they want to talk to somebody else. So whether that be a close friend or a professional or, you know, a life coach or a pastor or a counselor, different things like that, but a lot of times it's Kids do not want to overwhelm their parents, and so they will ask for somebody to talk to. Mm -hmm. 
I think sometimes I, I've in my own life have been learned the hard way that I get uncomfortable when my wife or kids are uncomfortable. So I'll go into fix it mode. So because if they're not uncomfortable, then I don't have to be uncomfortable anymore. And it's just one of those moments. It's like, okay, this is not about me. And it's really important for me to make sure that they have space to process. So Kristen, it sounds like some kids just might not ever disclose to parents. When kids do disclose to parents or another trusted adult in their life, that's not something that's scheduled. Like you, you can't anticipate that and you can't prepare for that. What are some of the do's and don'ts when you're on the receiving end of a disclosure that you did not anticipate? So a lot of times kids will disclose when they're not sitting down face to face with their parent or with their caregiver. Like maybe they'll be riding in the back of the car. That's exactly what I was going to say. There are so many times where, especially foster parents who might have heard one or two disclosures, will say, why does it happen in the back of the car? Uh, In fact, I have this one client and foster mom continually emails me and she's like, he asks me these questions and we are always riding in the car and I'm always driving. And she goes, I don't know what to do. Do I pull over and answer the question? Do I just say, uh, listen to music and we can talk about it later. But kids are, they either look for that reaction from their parents or they just don't want to see anybody or hear anybody. I had somebody in my office and they were playing and I was sitting on at my desk chair and I turned around to either write a note or put something into my computer and she like snapped and just started like word vomiting all of this stuff that happened. And this was early on in my career. And if you ever come into my office or the interns that I have sit in my office, a lot of times with either my little kids or kids that don't like eye contact or are uncomfortable with eye contact, I will actually face away from them. So I'll either be on the floor, you know, or I'll be looking down like coloring or something like that because kids are more apt to disclose to say something when they are not the center of attention. It feels too much. It feels too big for them to say. So just reassuring if you are on the receiving end of a disclosure, um, don't ask too many questions. Thank them for feeling comfortable enough for sharing that. If it's something, you know, bad, I am so sorry that happened to you. I'm so sorry that you didn't feel safe in that moment. Um, Don't promise anything. Don't promise that it will not happen again. Um, If they are a believer, if they're open to prayer, I would always ask that, you know, let's ask Jesus to watch over you. Let's watch. um, Let's ask Jesus to, you know, place his arm of protection over you or his peace over you. Asking them, do you have a safe adult? Do your parents know about this? Uh, if it is somebody else who is not a parent and it's a teacher at school or something like that, I always say, you know, I'm not sure if I have to talk to your parents about that or if I have to talk to the principal or something like that. Um, you don't want to make that child nervous after they've disclosed this information to you. You want to make them feel as comfortable as possible. So thanking them for sharing, thanking them for trusting you. But then also giving them the reality of, hey, I need to make sure that you're safe now. So Mm. are you going back into that home where there's domestic violence? Are you going back into that home where, you know, maybe mom has hit you and left bruises or something like that? Like it's now that you've disclosed to me, it's kind of my job to make sure that you're protected now. So 
being open and honest with them, especially if it's an older kid of, hey, I don't know what I have to do with this information, but I know I have to do something so that you're not put in that situation again. So good. Kristen, a lot of times we'll, we'll hear headlines or we'll hear stories or we'll hear nightmares, but we don't always hear redemption stories for a couple of different reasons. A, like the media doesn't make good money off of those, and B, there's confidentiality in play. So without betraying any of your professional confidences, how are you seeing God at work? Like where do you see some breakthroughs or some turning points in children just to remind our listeners that just because a child suffers a trauma at four, six, nine, thirteen, it's not the defining mark of their story and who God is shaping them to be. Oh, I love that you asked this, Steve, because I always think of this one client. So I started with her at Bethany. So I'm bilingual in English and Spanish. And so um, she actually was a refugee and she only spoke Spanish coming into my office. And so she spoke Spanish. She disclosed a number of her traumatic incidences while we were playing Candyland. Only in Spanish, she would come into my office and she was between four and six at the time. I can't necessarily remember. I think she was four. And only speaking Spanish, you know, kind of broken Spanish, broken English. She was in a foster home and I have now seen her for six years. So I've worked at Winning at Home almost four years. She followed me from Bethany to Winning at Home and is a beautiful almost third grader now living with her adoptive family. Um, I went and testified for her green card down in Chicago with her family. She disclosed a whole bunch of trauma um, in those early years. Her biological mom actually um, signed off rights and she was adopted in the same foster family that she's been living in for six years. And I am her safe person. So I saw her weekly for years. I saw her bi-weekly and now we just do monthly check-ins. And the monthly check-ins are just basically, we're just hanging out. We talk about, you know, what life is like. She lives in a primarily Caucasian family. She's Hispanic. So we talk about kind of her heritage and making sure that we, you know, keep that Spanish um, alive and well. However, with her, I always say sometimes the language that the child discloses trauma in feels more of a burden than it does a... um, a cool thing. So for her, she does not speak Spanish anymore, even though adoptive mom is bilingual as well. So disclosing her trauma in Spanish and then kind of leaving that language was her kind of leaving that trauma in the past. So I have often said, you know, if you need to disclose your trauma in English, because English is her primary language now, she's been with her foster mom, who's also a, um, a school counselor. And so she's been with this foster, you know, adoptive mom for for almost half a decade. And I said, you can always say it to mom, but you can always say, come back and say it to Miss Kristen. Mm. So she is my one story who I have. She has had consistent love, consistent caregiving, um, even when her life was pretty rocky. So there was trauma. And then there was a birth mom who was supposed to be working a plan and getting her back. And at the very last minute, um, decided to sign off rights. 
So um, her biological brothers went back to Biomom, but Biomom signed off rights on her, and she was actually a victim of human trafficking. And so my client was always a constant reminder to mom of this is what my life was like. We prayed that Jesus would just use her and use her life. And like I said, she's a happy-go-lucky third grader now. Yes, she still works through some of her stuff. She's adopted as as all adoptive kids would. Um, But she is one of those that I saw who she came into my office as and who she is now and just the growth and leaps and bounds and what Jesus and good, safe humans can, can be for kids. Kristen, in your journey, how has your view of who God is, how God operates, and what God cares about, how has that stretched and evolved over the course of your experience with working with kids in trauma? Oh, goodness. Um, I think in my own life and working with kids in trauma, I have to repeat a multitude of times, um, God's timing, not my own, and God's will, not my own. Um, I am very much of a, if I can control it, I will. If I can, um, you know, make my schedule stick to my schedule or my kid's schedule or anything like that, I will do it. But that's not how therapy works. Mm -hmm. Kids are going to take their own time to disclose, their own time to heal, their own time to use the coping skills that I know I've given them, that I know they practice. And it is not my timing for therapy or not my timing for the disclosure, but it's just Jesus's. It's just God's. And so I think that is also, you know, in therapy, we call it epiphanies or when kids realize something or when they say, oh my goodness, deep breathing really does work. Or, you know, dipping my feet in ice water really does bring me back to center. Um, And I'll sometimes say in the back of my mind, yeah, I told you that like five months ago. But learning that, you know, kids are going to do what they feel comfortable with in the same amount of time that God wants it done in their life, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that is so much easier said than done, especially when I'm sitting with a kid in my office who I've sat with for 10 months and gone over the same stuff. And mom still says that they're having the same issues. And, you know, I don't think therapy is working because you know what, he comes in here every day and he says that he plays with you, but I just don't see it working. And I have to continue to educate those people that, you know, it's not a it's not a timeline that these things are going to work it's i'm hopefully the kiddo and i we are giving their brain the opportunity to grow the opportunity to have coping skills the opportunity to kind of um move past that trauma but that trauma is always going to be there and that brain is not going to function in normal mode until it's ready to function and i don't have a timeline for that mm. I love to hear you say that, Kristen, because I think so many of us, whether it's related to trauma or just other challenges in our lives, we're like, well, God does miracles and God does can like snap his fingers and make it better. So if God can and God should and I want God to, then it must be so. And I'm realizing that in my own life, God has a long view as opposed to my like kind of thin slice of reality. And like when I look at the story of Joseph, like Joseph was trafficked as a child and his story, at least if my reading of Genesis is correct, his story doesn't reach like a full resolution until he's in his early 50s. So there's, it's like a decades long run. It doesn't mean that he's like irretrievably broken, but it means that like he, with the grace of God and he in his own brokenness and his own attempts to take steps towards surrender and faith 
it can be a long road, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad road or that he's any more broken than anybody else. Is that am, am I reading that right? Yeah. So I mean, if you if you look at why I got into this field, if you look at you know when I was a fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grader going to rehabs with my brother, missing school, learning about things that not. 10, 11, 12-year-olds should learn about or should hear about. And I was sitting down with my best friend, and she's like, why did your parents do that to you? And I'm like, why would my parents know any better? But I think back to that time and that place and what I experienced, and I don't think I would be the same person that I am today had I not experienced that 25 years ago. And all of those things and all of those unfortunate events that I had in my life as a child led me to who I am today and the safe place hopefully that other kiddos see me to be. That story didn't come full circle until he was in his 50s and 60s. My story, I don't even know if my story is full circle now, but I do know that um, that Ross's addictions and Ross's ultimate untimely death from addiction led me to be the the person that I am. I wrote in um, a paper when my brother was still alive of how Ross's addictions created my path as a child therapist Mm -hmm. and never knowing that Ross was going to die, you know, 12 years ago and never knowing that that was going to be part of my story is that you know, I had a brother and now I'm an only kid. And so when, when people come in and when they seek grief counseling or something like that, I have a picture of my brother and I dancing and they're like, oh, who is that? Because it has his little funeral card as well. And I say, that's my brother who died. And the amount of doors that opens for people to tell me their trauma or their experience of death and loss is just astounding. No matter what they're in my office for, if they're talking about a foster kid or one of their bio kids, um, it just, open so many doors and to think back on that 10 year old that was you know struggling with her brother you know not knowing where her brother was or anything like that to now you know 25 26 27 years later um, sitting in my office and having people disclose their trauma and their death stories to me because of what I've experienced and kind of that similar loss and grief um, and I felt so different back then, and I think that's one of the things that I strive for nowadays is making people feel, you know, you don't know what other people are going through. You don't know the hard times that people are are walking through. And so walking next to them in those hard times, uh, holding their hand if they reach out, not pulling them, not pushing them, not doing anything like that, but just being a place for them to talk, being a place for them to come in and just kind of deep breathe in my office, just kind of like, I don't have to be a kid or I don't have to pretend everything's okay. I can just be myself in Miss Kristen's office because she gets it. That's what I want for for myself. I want to be myself in my office. I want to be a kind of a person that people don't have to put on a face for. Um, But I also hope that I show the kids that come into my office that you don't know what Jesus is going to do with your life. I didn't know Mm -hmm. what he was going to do with my life when I was going through hard times. And look at it now. I have a client that I used to see probably very early on at Bethany, and she's in college now, and she's following my exact path. She's going for psychology in Spanish, and she goes, if I don't become a therapist, I want to become a lawyer because I don't want... I want to be that person that you were in my life. And I will forever save that text message from her because kids, counseling kids, you get so many glimpses of 
I think they're going to be really great someday, or I think this is really going to help them. But you also get so many, you're not doing anything. What in the world? Like my kid just comes in and plays with you. So I, those those glimpses of, hey, thanks for being my person or thanks for being Miss Kristen, it's so special because you don't know how Jesus is going to use them or you don't know how Jesus is going to use me in their life. Right. And that's a great encouragement to other therapists or caregivers to be able to say, you might not be the person who walks it all the way through to the happy mm-hmm. ending, but you might be a stepping stone, a super valuable resource or a lifeline that just got that person through that season you might be the person who walks that child to age nine exactly. and then you never see him again. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that you didn't have an opportunity to be faithful in that moment. Yeah. I love yep. you. You're just candor and your willingness to share your own story, Kristen, because somebody said there's really only two kinds of people in the world. There are people who have tasted suffering and people who haven't. Mm-hmm. And people who have experienced suffering can empathize and identify and serve and weep with people who are suffering in ways that other people can. I had a buddy once who said, it's no accident that God allowed Jesus to die via the cross, which is a real, like, Jesus could have died through, like, a more pain-free method, mm-hmm. but he didn't. It was, a, it was a trauma. And so we have this picture of a God who loves people so much, he's willing not just to understand their trauma mentally, but to, like, step into their trauma on a physical, visceral, emotional level. So Christ, who is both crucified and raised, a Christ who, even in his resurrection body, had scars, gives us permission not to be afraid of our wounds and scars and to be able to say, I can say with great confidence that there is a God who knows and has tasted my pain. And there's there's beauty in that, and there's hope in knowing that if he has tasted his own pain and has come out on the other side of it, um, and he loves us, then there's an opportunity for us to come out on the other side too. Mm-hmm. I think it's so important that we remember we don't know what Jesus, we don't know the story that Jesus is writing about us. Um, Even in the midst of, you know, some of the other hardships that I've had in my life. um, Did I want my brother to die from addiction? Absolutely not. Did I want Jesus to heal him and make a redemption story out of him? Yes, most definitely I did. But seeing the, seeing what came out of Ross's death and what came out of the experiences that my mom, my dad, myself have all lived through um, and knowing the people that we've helped through Ross's story, I think that's what gives me hope. That's what gives me, okay, even in the midst of trials and tribulations right now in 10 years, what's, what am I going to have learned from that or what will have come from that? And I think that's what people who put their kids in counseling or who have experienced, you know, hardships and trials need to remember is this is not my forever. This mm-hmm. is my right now. And right now is really, really hard. But there is a story that Jesus is writing. And it's hard to imagine what that ending will be um, for people that love control and for people who love, you know, seeing what the future holds. Um, but kind of giving that story to God and giving that story of I'm going through some really tough stuff right now, um, but I'm going to hand it all over to you and I'm going to let these professional people help. um, And I'm going to just trust that you have the ultimate plan for me. So good. Somebody once said God gives where he finds open hands. And I think that like when I'm trying to like white knuckle my way through life, I can't always receive the gift that God wants to give in the moment. Um, because my eyes are fixed on something else. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Kristen, for people who have a child who they think is ready for help, if they were to call Winning at Home today, just walk people through, for people who are intimidated, just walk them through that process. Let them know what it looks like. 
So we have a awesome staff of intake coordinators, and those people will take down your name, phone number, the type of insurance you have. Um, we do have a scholarship for people who cannot afford counseling or do not have insurance. Um, I am one of the only providers at Winning at Home, especially for children that take Medicaid. So that's the primary insurance for kids in foster care who have been adopted. So they will take down a bunch of your information, the child, the child's gender and age, and then the reason for counseling. And then they will reach out to all the staff that they have been trained on that kind of you know, work in the areas that your child is struggling in. So there's different child and adolescent therapists that, you know, really work with separation anxiety or depression or trauma or everything like that. So they'll reach out to us. We will say, yep, we have an opening or, you know, no, we can't. We, you know, we'll have to pass right now. And then we also have a big network of support that we can refer you to if we don't have openings. Um, If we do I ask for a parent meeting before, so I hate talking about the kids in front of the kids. So I will set up just a full session with that parent to kind of go through some of the trauma history, um, some of the, you know, what was pregnancy like, what was birth like, what was, you know, toddler, like everything like that. Um, And then, you know, what is this kiddo struggling with? So I want that kid to come into my office the first time with some background knowledge of, you know, why the kid is there. But I also don't want the kid to be overwhelmed by mom and dad talking about them um, to me, like saying, oh, my word, he's the worst kid ever or he's my sweet and sour kid, like uh, everything like that. And so I want that parent to be open and honest with me and nine times they're going to be open and honest with me if that child is not in the office so we'll set up a parent appointment and then we'll set up a couple of kiddo appointments after that and we'll kind of go from there awesome thanks again for your time Kristen. it's great to hear your story and your insight and thank god for the awesome work that you're doing thanks steve thanks so much for listening we'll catch you next time thanks for listening to hope through the hard stuff if you liked what you heard please remember to subscribe to it rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.